Greetings. This is your favorite Bible teacher, and I'm coming to you from my home office, and I'll be delivering a lecture today uh, that is intended for the good folks that gather at Gethsemane Lutheran Church in Tempe on Monday nights. We will, in a moment, continue our journey through the book of Exodus, beginning in chapter 3, making our way in the next 50 minutes or so through chapters 3, 4, 5, and maybe even to uh, the beginnings of chapter 6. Now, before we begin, let's pause for a word of prayer, giving thanks to the Lord, gracious Father, for bringing us together online uh, this day to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, I suppose I should begin my lecture by saying he is risen, and I'll imagine your hearty response, he is risen indeed. I'm recording this lecture Monday morning, the Monday after Easter. The Saunders family had an unusual celebration of Easter. Uh, Zoom was involved. Families gathered in isolation situations, and children celebrated uh, as best they could with social distancing being the norm. All are well. A number of our kids, two uh, respectively of the five, have been officially furloughed, uh, at least temporarily. Uh, our son has had to take a four-week mandatory paid vacation uh, from Red Bull, and hopefully things will sort themselves out by the end of that time period. And our daughter, Danielle, who had to take a uh, pay cut in order to retain her job, was reinstated to full salary because a project uh, came online for her architecture firm uh, that wanted her to be the principal architect. Uh, and so she was, in effect, rehired at full salary. So again, every day brings new challenges to us all, including yours truly. And for the time being, most certainly for the Mondays in April, you'll be listening to me via this site and through the miracle of these podcasts. We'll sort out future schedules when the churches reopen, and I hope that will happen sooner than later. When they do, we will, and maybe we'll press on into June this year. We haven't done that in the past. I'm anticipating an August session, hopefully again in our regular venues. I'm going to call it a month with Moses, and you'll have sort of a head start on everyone because we're in the book of Exodus now. We opened last week the book of Exodus, and as we do, and we know the story well, let's remind ourselves that all of Judaism is predicated basically on two pillars, right? You can boil Judaism down to two general teachings of God. The first is the teaching of creation. And that is, of course, how the biblical narrative in the book of Genesis begins, the most important book in the 
entire collection of the Hebrew Bible, uh, the most important verse, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which means there was a time before the beginning. There was an official beginning, and God was the beginner. He was the first mover. Everything uh, began with God. He created the heavens and the earth. He's above that creation. He's supernatural in a world at that time, the lifetime of Moses, 1,500 years before Jesus, when gods were the source of created items in the world, if you will. There were gods of the sky. There were gods of the earth. There were gods of the Nile. There were gods of the animal kingdom. You worshiped gods that rose out of the created order, and the Jewish faith community presents a new vision to the world, a God who is above nature, a God who created nature, and all nature then is ordered by that reality. That's the first pillar of Judaism, its gift to the world. The second pillar has to do with the book of Exodus, and that pillar is the pillar of freedom, that God is a liberator, that God will uh, always release people from their captivity and from slavery. That's why for the past 3,500 years, Jewish men and women of faith, and even those who have no faith but call themselves secular Jews, gather on Passover on an annual basis to hear read and explicated every year the story of the book of Exodus, the Seder meal, right? That meal that we remember as Christians and call the Last Supper is a meal of an ordered recounting of the story of the book of Exodus. The word Seder in Hebrew means order. So in modern Hebrew, if you're uh, chatting with your friend and they ask you, uh, in Hebrew, which is how are things going, you say, which means all is ordered in my life. Everything's good. Everything's okay. Is the name uh, or the way that you would respond. The word Seder means order. And the meal that we call the Last Supper was an ordered liturgy, really, of recitation of the events of the book of Exodus that lead to freedom, right? In Exodus chapter 12, freedom from captivity, not only, as you will see, for the Israelites, but also for any and all who have come to the conclusion that their gods of ancient Egypt have been compromised, and that the God of the Israelites is and has revealed himself to be supreme. And so they join the Israelites as they flee from their captives. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That comes in chapter 12. We are now in chapter 3. In chapter 3, and we made sort of a foray into the opening verses at the end of the lecture last week, we reacquaint ourselves with Moses, who has been now tending flocks of sheep and goats for his father-in-law, Jethro, also called Ru'ael, for 40 years. So, in the lifespan of Moses, which will span 120 years, he's now in his 80th year. 40 years, raised as a royal in the court of Pharaoh with all the credential associated 
with that, which is important because he will have access to Pharaoh in just a couple of chapters hence. And how does he gain audience with Pharaoh? Well, because he has the credential of having been a prince of Egypt and now for 40 years has followed after flocks in this sort of idyllic life of preparing him for his great commission. So, in chapter 3, verse 1, As Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Oreb, which is called the Mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord, our pre-incarnate Christ figure in the Hebrew Bible, and only in the Hebrew Bible, appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not seem to be consumed. It did not burn up. And his curiosity was aroused. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. The Jewish faith community has always honored Moses in this regard because he was curious and not afraid. Typically, an illiterate and uneducated shepherd coming across a scene like this would be terrified and would flee out of fear, but not Moses. He's intrigued. He wants to know more. And so he approaches this very unusual vision. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look and must have been pleased by this response, God, you see, synonymous with the angel of the Lord, called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses, startled, said, here I am. And the voice of God said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, your ancestor. I am the God of Isaac, your ancestor. I am the God of Jacob, your ancestor. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Although we know that what he was looking at was the glowing face of the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity. You'll remember we looked at that initially when we took leave and found ourselves in Judges chapter 13. Remember in Judges chapter 13, the story of the Annunciation and birth of Samuel. And in that particular chapter, Manoah and the angel of the Lord have an engagement. In Judges chapter 13, after Manoah offers his sacrificial offering to the Lord, we read in verse 20 of Judges chapter 13, as the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord, the same character that we've identified here in Exodus chapter 3, ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. And when the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. And listen now, in verse 22, he said to his wife, we are doomed to die, for we have beheld the face of God. We have seen God. Now his wife, level-headed and reasonable, responded, if the Lord had meant to kill us, 
he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor have shown us all these things, or told us all of this. But the point I'm trying to make in Judges chapter 13, verse 22, is Manoah, seeing this biblical character, assumed that this would result in a death sentence, because no one can see the face of God and live. Well, he didn't see the face of God. He saw the face or the image or the visage of the angel of the Lord. Now, I come back to Exodus chapter 3, and in verse 6, God reveals himself to Moses. I am the God of your fathers, your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, Well, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Suffering that Moses would have been aware of these past 40 years. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, currently the home of Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hiveites and Jebusites, but will eventually be the home of the Israelites. Because now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh, your my man, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Why now? 400 years of waiting, finally God is responding to this cry for freedom. Well, because in that 400 years, God has given the peoples who had been residing in that land an opportunity to repent and turn to him in relationship. But they've amplified their sin. So we'll learn in the book of Leviticus, they are going to be evicted so that the Israelites can enter in. Now, Moses, hearing the commission, responds to God in verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Why me not interested in the job? Excuse number one. But the angel of the Lord, God, responded, it's not you who is going to accomplish this, but you and I. I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will bring them here, and you will worship God on this mountain, Mount Oreb, also called Mount Sinai, in the land of Midian, which is in modern-day Saudi Arabia. Well, excuse or concern number two. Moses, in verse 13, said to God, Well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me because they don't really remember me, and I appear to them as a man who has come to them from the eastern deserts of Midian. What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? What is his name? What what part of creation is he associated with? So we have the god Heket in Egyptian idolatry, which is related to the frogs of the Nile. We have the gods Osiris and Iris 
uh, Isis, who are related to the gods of the Nile. So again, every god of every part of the created order in Egypt has a name, and they're going to ask me what yours is. What shall I tell them? And God, in verse 14, said to him, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am who I am has sent me to you. Now, that is the sacred name of God that we transliterate and pronounce as Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, which is that intimate name that the Jewish faith community relates to God when speaking of God among themselves. You'll recall that this name was first revealed to us in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. In the creation account that focuses intently on the events of day 6, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, meaning we're going to now look at day 6 again, sort of microscopically, if you will, when the Lord God, that's Yahweh, made the earth and the heavens. And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God, Yahweh, had not sent rain on the earth, no need, no vegetation yet. And there was no man to work the ground, but streams then came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord God, there it is again, Yahweh, formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And in verse 8, Now the Lord God, Yahweh, then planted a garden in the east of Eden. In verse 9, The Lord God made all the trees grow out of the ground. Uh, and everything then continues to the end of that sixth day. The Lord God, that God of intimate personal relationship, in contradistinction to the name of God in Genesis 1, through Genesis 2, verse 4, the word there, not Lord God, but Lord, remember, was Elohim. So again, Moses is hearing the intimate name of God, which in translation becomes I am. And by the way, in the Greek language of the New Testament is transliterated into Greek as ego eimi. Now, I'm going to pause here and just remind you of something you already know. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, it's also recorded in the Gospels, ah, Luke and Mark, when Jesus appears walking on the waters of the Sea of Galilee, this too included in the narrative found in John chapter 6, when in Matthew chapter 14, verse 25, during the fourth watch of the night, the last watch before the dawn, Jesus came out to them walking on the sea. When the disciples, verse 26, saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. This is Matthew chapter 14, verse 26. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. In the Greek, Ego eimi. In Hebrew, Yahweh. Don't be afraid. Jesus reveals himself to be God in that situation, walking across the surface 
of the deep. That's why in the Markan account, remembered by Peter, the preaching of Peter recorded dutifully by Mark, when Jesus appears uh, walking on the sea, you may remember uh, those particular details when we make our way through the Gospel of Mark. We haven't done that yet, but in Mark chapter 6 and verse 48, when evening came, I'm walking into verse 48, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. In verse 48, Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. That means he's moved close enough in proximity now. They've nearly reached their destination on the western shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them. He was walking on the lake, and here it is, and he was about to pass by them. Now, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And he spoke to them and said, take courage. Here it is again. It is I. Ego, Amy, don't be afraid. He was intending to pass by them. Well, keep that in your memory banks. Because in Exodus chapter 33, the angel of the Lord is going to pass by Moses and reveal as much of his glory to Moses as Moses can possibly uh, understand. And in that passage, again, the passing by is a way of saying he's going to reveal himself in his divinity. So there's so much in this name of Exodus chapter 3. Again, I come back to Exodus chapter 3 and the second concern of Moses in verse 13. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. you identified yourself as the God of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they ask me, which one? What is his name? And what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am, Yahweh. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you, the God of Genesis, the God who is above nature, the God who created the natural world and is not of it but above it has sent me to you. And God said in verse 15, you are also to say to Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. My name is Yahweh. Remember, I'm above all other gods. I'm above creation. I'm supernatural. And by the way, you would never make that up when you would look around you and see everything in the created order. The mountains, the God of the mountains. The valleys, the God of the valleys. Uh, the rivers, the God of the rivers. That sort of thing makes perfect sense. Not the creation of a God who <laughs> is supernatural and above everything else. So in verse 16, you are to go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what you have done in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of Canaan. It's a land that flows with milk and honey, which remember, is perfect for the Israelites, meaning the milk comes 
from goats, and the honey comes from the date palm. So you are a pastoring agricultural people, and uh, therefore the land will be well suited to your particular set of gifts. Now the elders of Israel will, in verse 18, listen to you because of your curriculum vitae, because of your experience in the house of Pharaoh. You're a prince for 40 years raised in the shadow of everything opulent and magnificent that Egypt could afford you. So then you and the elders, in verse 18, are, go to the, are going to go to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. It's going to take more than a singular request. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. Will it take more than one wonder? Most certainly it will. Two, four, six, eight, ten. We will have to wait and see. But again, each time Moses will present himself before Pharaoh, he will up the ante. And you'll see that progression move steadily toward the final and tenth plague. That's what it will take before Pharaoh will finally acquiesce, drive Moses and Aaron, the Israelites, and any other interested persons out of the land, and will ask them, when they arrive at their final destination, to pray for him. Now he goes on to make a promise in verse 21 of chapter 3, And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. You'll fill them with all of these parting gifts effectively. And so you will plunder the Egyptians, sort of a back pay for 400 years of slavery idea. Remember, much of this material will be necessary in the book of Exodus to construct uh, the major parts of the wilderness tabernacle, as we will see. Well, you'd think that would be enough for Moses. He's uh, demurred, not once but twice now, the calling, and has now received a confident assurance that all will go well, but he's still wondering if this will ever work itself out. So, in chapter 4, the same scene continues. Moses answers God and says, what if, on the off chance, I do everything you ask me to do, and they don't believe me or listen to me and say, you know what, we're not even sure the Lord appeared to you in the desert, and you had a vision of a bush that was consumed by flames but wasn't consumed in the process. Well, the Lord hears that concern and says to Moses, what is that that you hold in your hand? God knows what it is, obviously. But Moses replies, it's my shepherd's staff. And the Lord said, throw it down on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And he ran from it, wisely so, because serpents in the desert region of Midian were poisonous beyond 
imagination. Remember, uh, predators, these serpents, would have to uh, bite their victim and secure then the death of that victim as quickly as possible. Small animals, rodents, that sort of thing, which were not in ready supply. So the venom developed in these desert regions among these serpents was most poisonous because it had to be so instantaneously effective because food only came by every now and then. And so it makes sense as a shepherd, seeing a serpent like this, that you don't run toward it, you run away from it. But the Lord said, not so fast. Reach out your hand and take it by its tail. It's not a rattlesnake. It's some sort of a desert serpent. It hadn't coiled up, if you will. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake. And as he did, it turned back into a staff in his hand. And the Lord God said, this sign is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Because you'll take that staff into their midst and you'll cast it down in their presence. It will turn into a deadly serpent. They will all run away. You will then boldly go forth and grasp its tail and it will turn to its staff-like condition. And then he said, in addition to this, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses obeyed. He put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous. It was covered with some sort of a psoriasis. It was like snow. Now put it back in your cloak. So Moses put his hand back in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So the Lord said, if they, meaning the elders, do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous signs, they may believe the second. And if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, then take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. It will turn red as it's poured from the vessel in your hand before it hits the ground. And the Nile, of course, is a source of life. That life has been compromised because for so long a time, innocent male Israelite children were pitched into the Nile where they died. This will be a judgment on the Nile and the gods associated with the Nile in ancient Egypt. And so again, this is a way to bring confidence to Moses, who wonders, well, what am I going to do if they don't believe my story? But he's not done yet. That is, Moses still doesn't want the job. So Moses said to the Lord, okay, Lord, new problem. In verse 10, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am, and you know, slow of speech and tongue. And if I ever had the ability of eloquence, if I ever had the ability to speak confidently in public, well, it's long since faded away. Since my days in the royal court of Pharaoh, uh, 40 years ago, I've been following after sheep and goats in the desert. A good life, a healthy life, a hearty life, but not one where I've made public pronouncement and uh, given speeches before assembled elders. I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm just not up to the task. And the Lord responded to this fourth concern. Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? 
Is it I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. I have a plan. You get there. I'll solve it on the way. And then finally, the fifth response of Moses. The fifth time he tries to get out of the job, Moses says, Oh Lord, please, just send someone else. Not me. I'm not your man. This is the fifth time he said to the Lord, I'm really not capable. I'm not up to the task. And in fact, with this fifth statement, I'm not interested. Find someone else. Well, hearing this, the Lord's anger burned against Moses, who has free will, and that free will is honored. And he said, all right, what about your brother? What about Aaron, the Levite? Aaron, his older brother, who he hasn't seen for 40 years? Well, I know he can speak well. He's still in Egypt. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. So you shall speak to him, everything I've revealed to you, and put words in his mouth. And I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. Eventually, you'll gain your confidence, Moses, and you'll speak boldly before Pharaoh. But at the beginning, we'll use Aaron as a source of confidence, eloquence, and uh, he will be your spokesperson. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if you were, as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him telling him as a prophet, you see, what he should say. And so, it's time to go. And before you leave, don't forget your staff. Take this staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. Why would God have to remind Moses, a shepherd, right, to take the staff back in your hand? Well, because Moses was suspicious of that staff. He wasn't quite certain that that serpent within it, deadly poisonous, would remain locked inside. So he thought, well, I can always get another staff. I'll leave that one behind. But one of the things we know about shepherds is that their staffs are unique to each of them. And each one has always belonged to that individual. We'll see that later in the book of Exodus when we determine uh, through the presentation of staffs of leaders of the Israelite community that Aaron will be chosen as the high priest, even though he will fail before that selection in the incident of the golden calf of Exodus chapter 32. And the idea would be God will choose a staff. When the staff is chosen, everyone knows, ah, that's the staff of Aaron. So the fact that Moses wants to leave his staff behind is really another indication that he doesn't want the job. He's afraid that if he picks up the staff, he has to travel with that serpent inside of it. And that's why God says, no, no, no. You can't leave without taking the staff back in your hand. This will allow you to perform miraculous signs. So Moses did. And in verse 18 of chapter 4, he went back to his father-in-law and said to him, you need to let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Now Moses and his father-in-law would have been aware uh, that there has been a change in Egypt's leadership and it would no longer imperil Moses's life to go back and visit his family, Miriam and Aaron in particular. He doesn't fill in Jethro, his father-in-law, with all the details of what happened on 
the mount called Oreb earlier. His father-in-law says, please go, and I wish you well. Now, the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, you need to go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. And that must have been what he conveyed to Jethro, saying, well, the grapevine has given me the confidence that I can do so. So Moses, now watch this, took his wife, Zipporah, and sons, two in number, and put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt, and as directed, even though fear was still part of the equation, he took the staff of God in his hand. Remember that staff that somehow contained a deadly venomous serpent. Now the Lord had said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. The staff becomes a serpent. The hand, white as snow, returns to its fleshly color, and water drawn from the Nile is befouled and turns red and is not potable any longer. And know that I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Now again, this is fast forwarding to the end of the succession of plagues. The tenth plague is the death of the firstborn. That can be something that we may end up experiencing unless we respond earlier to wondrous signs and miracles that are presented on a basis of steady and sure escalation. This idea of hardening the heart of Pharaoh hardly seems fair. Some biblical scholars, and I would concur with their consideration, imagine it more to be in line with the hardening of the heart, the squeezing of the heart, to, to, to compress the heart like you would a sponge to see if in it there's any liquidity, there's anything that, that, that can be squeezed out of it that would bring hope. And if it won't happen at the announcement of the first plague, maybe the third, maybe the sixth, maybe the eighth, and hopefully, and most poignantly, before the tenth plague, which is preceded by a plague of darkness, which should have gotten all the attentions of the Egyptians that would then be followed by the death of the firstborn. That, that's as far as God's going to go. And again, he's going to give Moses the announcement time and time and time again of each successive plague. So this hardening of the heart is sort of a process that God is going to use to sort of get the attention of Pharaoh. And we'll see. It works. It works. Each time a plague comes and then goes, Pharaoh's heart is pressed even harder, and, and there's some suppleness in it. Again, another interesting insight in verse 22. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. But God is not a God who only has one child. That is an offer to familial relationship, pro-offered to Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians. Look, Israel is my firstborn son. But you, 
the Egyptians can be part of my family as well, but never as my firstborn. There's only one of those, but I need to have other children as well. Now, I've told you, let my firstborn son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn. That's fast-forwarding to the end of the narrative. I would read that rather differently, but if he refuses to let him go, it may result in the fact that one of the plagues I have planned will be, tragically, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. That may be what it takes to get his attention. Now, the next series of verses baffle the uninformed reader of sacred scripture. You're reading along in the Bible, and you've made it this far in Exodus chapter 4. And then in verses 24 and following, something amazing happens, which is going to take us to the end of our lecture this evening. So, at a lodging place along the way, because they're making a journey from the land of Midian, Saudi Arabia, across the vast expanse of the Sinai Peninsula, heading toward the capital city and the palatial estates of Pharaoh, at a lodging place along the way, the Lord, meaning the angel of the Lord, met Moses and was about to kill him. What? Was about to kill this messenger who was going to announce deliverance for the Israelites from their captivity? Well, let's read between the lines. He was angry enough with Moses about something that he was willing to kill him. I'm going to kill you. That's that sort of parental frustration. But in response to this appearance, watch now, in verse 25, Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses's feet with the detached foreskins, saying, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And uh, so the Lord let him alone. Parenthetically, this is a later editorial edition at the end of verse 26. At that time that she said bridegroom of blood, she was referring to circumcision. What's happening here? Well, it appears that Moses, having moved out of Egypt into the land of Midian, married Zipporah, the daughter of Ruel, and they had produced two children in the land of Midian who had been raised by Moses and Zipporah uh, during the next 40 years. We have to assume at some point that the angel of the Lord had given specific direction to Moses that before he would return to Egypt as the liberator, he would have to have his sons circumcised in deference to the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. This is the sign on their reproductive organ that, that is a cut where they bleed so that they know that when they fulfill the first biblical commandment, and that is before the flood, and after the flood, to be fruitful and multiply, it will not be of their own ingenuity and ability, but rather God's blessing that children will come into the world. It's a lesson carved on the male member. The male has to bleed. Now remember, on the seventh, I'm sorry, eighth day of their life, we don't know how old the two sons of Moses are 
at this time. It appears as well that Moses must have informed Zipporah that this was his intention before they would leave on the journey, and Zipporah must have said something to the effect over my dead body. Are you going to cut the foreskins off of any of our two sons? But now, threatened by the angel of the Lord, she, Zipporah, recognizing how angry he is, and therefore how important this circumcision ritual must be to Moses and the Israelites, took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskins. These are adult males, or at least teenage young men, we would have to imagine at this time. And when we read, touched Moses's feet with it, she threw the foreskins at the feet of Moses. There you are. That's what you wanted. You are a bridegroom of blood to me. This is barbaric. And as she did that, the Lord left Moses alone. And the Lord then, in verse 27, speaks to Aaron. Aaron, of course, is on his way to meet Moses, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and embraced him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Pause here and ask yourself the question, what happens to Zipporah? What happens to the two sons of Moses who were circumcised? Well, they do not accompany Moses for the remainder of the journey. Zipporah and her two sons return home to her father's house, Ra'ul, and there she lives out her days, by the way, in the book of Exodus, when Moses delivers the Israelites at God's command from their captivity, and they make their way back to the mountain of God, while encamped at the base of the mountain of God, Ruel, Zipporah, and the two sons of Moses will return. They'll be reunited with Moses, but they never are together ever again as husband and wife. This is effectively a separation that leads to divorce, so that in Numbers chapter 12, Moses is free to remarry, and he does. He remarries a Cushite woman. So the story of Zipporah, uh, the wife of Moses for the better part of those 40 years in the land of Midian, doesn't end here. But she does not accompany him with Aaron all the way to Egypt. So in verse 29 of chapter 4 of the book of Exodus, Moses and Aaron, when they arrived, in the land of Goshen, brought together all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron, remember the spokesperson, who's bold and more eloquent at this time than Moses, told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And then, not Aaron, but Moses also performed the signs before the people. Now again, I say Moses, not Aaron, because the word is he, and we have to acknowledge that the he here is Moses. And they believed. Now, what signs were those? Well, the staff that became a serpent, and then when the tail was grasped, became a staff again. The hand in the cloak, out of the cloak, leprous and restored, and water drawn from the Nile that in a pitcher was poured out on the ground and turned blood red. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them in verse 
31, they believed. And uh, when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and they're seeing their misery, they bowed down and they worshiped. Now, it's important to set the scene for next Monday evening's lecture. This display of Acts Miraculous was very public, right? You've assembled all the elders of the Israelites in the land of Goshen, where they've resided for the better part of 400 years. They are serving under brutal taskmasters as slaves, making bricks and building cities for the pharaohs. Those taskmasters are Egyptians. This is a grapevine culture. Everyone knows in the Middle East about the goings-on of everyone else in the Middle East. And so something like this, a public display and manifestation of these miraculous aspects of Moses would not have remained a secret. And word of mouth would have passed these events from one to another and from Israelite to Egyptian and from Egyptian overlord to people in charge so that eventually you'll see that before Moses and Aaron arrive in the presence of Pharaoh, Pharaoh has already commissioned some of his magicians or wise men to duplicate all three of these already publicly displayed miracles. Now, these magi do it with the acts of sort of David Blaine magical illusionist's ability, right? And so, again, I want you to know that, that in advance of actually presenting these miraculous manifestations before Pharaoh, they, that is, the minions of Pharaoh, have already figured out a way to duplicate them. And this will be a challenge that Moses will have to face. And this is why there will have to be an amplification of the plagues, beginning, first of all, with the plague on the Nile River, but then from that plague to the plague of frogs, to the plague of lice, to the plague of boils, etc., etc., etc. We're going to see if there's anything in Pharaoh that can be stirred to proper action. So we have that to look forward to next week when we enter into Exodus chapter 5. But because I'm limited in time, about 50 minutes with these recordings, it's all I can do for now. But let's close with a word of prayer before we are on our way. Father, we thank you for the gift of Moses and the gift of faith and the gift of curiosity and the gift of honest assessment. We thank you that you work with men and women like Moses and others who may not always want to respond to the call, but in the end do, and your message goes forth. We pray for our pastors and our ministers and our priests and our deacons and all those who preach and proclaim your word in very challenging circumstances, online, through direct feeds and live telecasts. We ask a blessing that the message of salvation and hope can continue to be heard and responded to in all the churches that we call home. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. And as I never tire of reminding you, never forget what a great student you are. Good evening, and God bless.